Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Wednesday, September 8th edition of the Basement Academy. As we continue on with our extended reflection on critical race theory, if not critical race theory, then what? I want to begin our time with a psalm as we do, Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98. This psalm is the basis for Isaac Watts' uh, hymn, Joy to the World. It was not originally written to be a Christmas hymn, but it got pulled over. Uh, and so hopefully you can hear some of those uh, themes in it. Love this the way it ends. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist here, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. There's a distinction between the nations, the goyim, okay, the peoples of the earth, and the house of Israel. Abraham's family. And so Genesis chapter 12, Abram, I'm or Abraham, as his name is changed, I, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all nations, all peoples. And so God's plan of salvation, as we mentioned yesterday, is personal. It is relational. And so God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, miraculously gives to Abraham and Sarah a child, Isaac. Isaac, then Jacob, Jacob, then the 12 uh, sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And through this one family, Abraham's family, comes Messiah eventually. In the fullness of time, God brings forth his son uh, through uh, Abraham's family. All the other people, the nations of the earth, are the Gentiles, okay? They are distinct. And so there's a, there's a Jew-Gentile distinction that even sits underneath this psalm. And so the salvation of God for Israel, he remembered his promises to the house of Israel. What promises? The promise to Abraham. And so that promise, that set of promises to Abraham becomes the salvation for the whole world. That was God's plan all along. Plan A, no plan B. Plan A, save Abraham, uh, choose Abraham, set Abraham apart, enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham, through him bring forth Messiah to be crucified under the Roman Empire, but with complicity by the family of Abraham, 
who turned Jesus over, who arrest, had him arrested, etc. And so through the complicity of Abraham's family and the Roman Empire or the, the Gentiles, so Jew and Gentile alike are implicated and Jew and Gentile alike are redeemed through the death of Jesus Christ. Wonderful story. We can go back to our theology series. Psalm 98 sits as a nice backdrop to what I want to talk about today. Now, yesterday I talked about starting with the, the actual stories of suffering, starting with the, the relational context, and that may explain why critical race theory has become so quickly popular. It drives alongside, comes up upon the crash scene and says, hop in, let's go, let's get you rescued, okay? Okay, I want to kind of pivot a little bit and I want to talk about why all of this is actually much harder than we think it is. It seems so easy. Just get on board with critical race theory or something else, and we will solve human injustice, racial division, etc. Critical race theory presents as if this is an easy thing, right? All the white people admit their complicity, uh, change the way, decenter themselves, give uh, the, the the positions of authority and power and influence. Um, seed that to people of color, and then things kind of will take care of themselves. Not quite, okay? So here's why all of this is harder to get at, okay? So we're going back to the whiteboard, it's a little bit of abstraction, but we're going to try to get personal as the end of the week goes. Why this is harder to get at and why issues of human injustice, particularly in our own society, are harder to solve because Christians hold dual citizenship. This is why it's hard for us as Christians to get our hands around this. Christians hold dual citizenship. We belong to the commonwealth of heaven, the city of God, as it were, but we also hold citizenship in the city of man, some earthly kingdom, some earthly commonwealth. So for us, we are citizens both of heaven and the United States. Okay, for a Christian in Afghanistan, okay, they hold citizenship in the same commonwealth in heaven, okay, but they hold a citizenship in a different city of man within Afghanistan. Christians in China, similarly, same commonwealth in heaven as we do, so that's our unity in Christ. We share one citizenship, one faith, one hope, one Lord, but they're citizens of the, the uh, People's Republic of China. I think that's what it's called, <clears throat> PRC. And so Christians have dual citizenship everywhere, okay? So wherever they live, wherever they hold their earthly citizenship, they also hold a heavenly citizenship, okay? That concept is not that hard to understand. But the church and the state, the two cities, city of God, city of man, have different jurisdictions, okay? So in our nation, we understand, we think in terms of the separation of church and state, okay? And that's as much to protect the church from the state. It sometimes gets portrayed the other way around to protect the state from an encroaching church. It is to protect the church from an encroaching state, okay? That's for another debate in another day. But we think in terms of two distinct jurisdictions. So that's why, you know, the, the, when there are all kinds of disputes that, that come about and the state has protected, there, there's, there's some carve-outs, as it were, 
uh, to protect for religious liberty, religious liberty exemptions. Okay, those are certainly in play in our increasingly secularizing society, which does not tolerate the church holding some distinctions. Okay, and so we see some of this encroachment uh, taking place on some uh, some significant uh, social cultural issues. Here's the problem. <clears throat> we confuse church and state all the time. We, 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 we conflate them. We, we, we bring them together, um, which is why our political involvement gets confusing with our religious involvement, because we think of these things as an extension of one another that the laws of the United States, again, not everybody, but, but many Christians think that the laws of the United States should reflect the laws of Scripture, okay, God's law. And there is a, a framework or a foundation underneath our United States Constitution that reflects uh, a, a biblical Judeo-Christian framework. We think in terms of all men being created equal, this in our founding documents, okay? And, and so this idea of the equality of the human family derives from Scripture, and we lean into Genesis all the time here in the Basement Academy, okay? Here's how I want to illustrate the confusion that often is made between church and state in our minds. We hear stories of racial division, racial injustice, etc., and people, Christian people, say things or think things like this, we should do something about, and then fill in the blank, we should do something about employment discrimination, we should do something about housing discrimination, we should do something about um, harm to unarmed black men, we should do something about, and then you know, economic disparity uh, in the United States. Okay, so this conversation comes up within the context of a Sunday school class or uh, uh, pulpits, okay? I, I know uh, colleagues of mine who preach these kinds of sermons. Um, uh, or at the coffee pot after church or in a Bible study or amongst, you know, Christian friends who are discussing. We should do something about I've been in, in prayer meetings at Greenwich where the confusion gets illustrated. We pray for Greenwich and our elders and deacons, and we pray for our military and our armed forces that they would be out of harm's way. Well, at that moment, we've confused the two because Greenwich does not have any armed forces. Greenwich does not have a military to protect it, okay? So at that moment, <clears throat> we Christians in prayer group go from praying for the local church of which we are a part and of which we are members. So we're praying for the health of individuals and our leadership and the direction of our church, etc. And then immediately pivot to praying for the United States military. Now, you're thinking, well, what's wrong with that? I'm not saying we shouldn't be praying for the United States military, but who do, what do we mean when we say we? And we shift identities so quickly 
which reveals that we have confused things in our mind. So when, when we say we should do something about which we, is it your family? Okay, so if I say to Krista, we should do something about this situation, I'm talking to my wife. Implied with that is she and I should do something that the two of us or our family with our children when we're gathered together, which doesn't happen as often, right? <clears throat> so when I'm talking to Krista, we is the two of us. We should go out to eat. We should invite some friends over for dinner. You know, we, so that's the reference. When we're with some gathered friends and might say, hey, we should think about, and then, hosting a block party. Well, now I'm talking about my neighborhood, right? So I'm talking to neighbors. And so the logical understanding is that when I'm talking with some neighbors about some situation in the neighborhood, that we're talking about organizing the few of us trying to serve together in organizing something, some activity for our neighborhood. If you're talking with folks at your workplace, we should do something about, well, then it's understood that you're probably talking in the context of your employment situation, okay, or some volunteer uh, organization where you may serve. Or if you're having a conversation at Greenwich, maybe the leadership of the, the church gathers and says, we should do something about the Afghan refugees, okay? Well, it's implied that we're talking about Greenwich organizing themselves, okay, bringing leadership to this 500, 600 people that call themselves Greenwich Presbyterian Church and doing our part to bring some relief, okay? But often I find in conversation, <clears throat> Christians speaking with one another, be it in uh, more personal family settings or smaller group settings, neighborhood, or, or for some of us who work at the church, <laughs> you know, that's the workplace. We should do something about, but the referent there is not the five or six or eight or a, of us. It is the government of the United States of America. We should do something about unemployment. We should do something about housing. We should do something about racial injustice, okay? At that moment, we is a small group of people, but the reference is we, the people of the United States of America. That confusion happens all the time in this kind of discussion when we're talking about social, cultural issues of the day. We should do something about pornography. We should do something about abortion. We should do something about uh, racial injustice. We should do something about economic disparity. All of those conversations have happened. I've had those kinds of conversations in church settings for 30 years. We should do something about that kind of conversation. It's a group of people who themselves are relatively like-minded. And so there's some freedom to speak about some issue of the day that's happening. 
we should do something about <clears throat> human rights for LGBTQ, okay? That kind of conversation may arise, probably less so in the context of a Greenwich, which is a more socially conservative church, but it's very frequent, I believe, uh, from conversations I've had within some of our more progressive churches, certainly in our presbytery. But that's where the tension starts to show. Because if you're sitting in a room, as I do and Eric does, we, we sit in our presbytery meetings and we, Eric and I, and some of our elders, we hear those kinds of discussions. We should put an end to fossil fuel use. Well, I don't know that you're speaking for me in that situation, but those are, we should put an end to discrimination of, of LGBTQ plus in our society. <clears throat> we should, and so I sit at a presbytery meeting and I realize, okay, you are not speaking for me. I, me is not part of we in this situation. But the person who is speaking there is speaking with freedom because they assume a like-mindedness within the room. But I am not like-minded. And that speaking into a legislative issue within the context of the United States of America. So now we've got the city of God, we Christians gathered here at a presbytery meeting, speaking to a perceived need within the city of man, within the United States, that there is discrimination against gays or lesbians or non-binary individuals or uh, racial um, uh, division, okay? So some, some discrimination against people of color. And so the city of God is speaking to the city of man, but we're confusing because those are two different distinct jurisdictions, okay? Now, let me take it one step further, okay? I'm gonna leave you hanging today, okay? Which is to set the hook to keep coming back for uh, Thursday and Friday. <clears throat> I, this is my experience, that Christians, we Christians routinely confuse the audience for scripture. Now, it is routinely confused within the world. We, I expect that. I don't expect someone who is not a believer to understand the scriptures, okay? So it's routinely misunderstood. The audience of, 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 of scripture is routinely misunderstood uh, outside the church. But within the church, I observe that the audience of scripture is routinely misunderstood. <clears throat> I'm going to try to illustrate that. So here's example one. Does the United States Constitution have binding authority upon China? Citizens of China, citizens of Saudi Arabia, citizens of Argentina, citizens of any other nation. Does the United States Constitution have binding authority outside of the citizenship and the territory of the United States. <clears throat> does the Chinese, I don't know if they have a constitution, I should probably know this. Does, let, let's, let's say, uh, does, does, the, does parliament, does British parliament speak with authority to myself, though I'm an American citizen? Well, the answer is obvious, no. 
this document that we call the United States Constitution has jurisdiction, has limited jurisdiction. It is limited to its citizens, okay? We, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect government. <laughs> and so it's this language that, but, but so that's the illustration. Does the United States Constitution have binding authority for non-citizens? Now, it has a binding authority when you're within the United States, you non-citizens of the U.S. have to abide by the authority, okay? If you're in this distinct territory, <clears throat> then it's binding authority, okay? A second example that's harder, that's going to be a little unsettling, I think, where does the New Testament ever advocate for changing Rome or Roman policy? Where does the New Testament advocate an ethical, moral, legislative policy change within the Roman government? Because that was, Rome was in power at the time, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul is criticized by some Christians today, what I would call progressive Christians today. They would want to discount the authority of the, uh, the apostolic writings of Paul because he does not advocate for things like the abolition of slavery, He's, we studied in Ephesians uh, not too many weeks ago in the household code. Slaves obey your masters. Masters treat your slaves with kindness. Okay. Nowhere does Paul say, Rome, change your policy towards slavery. And because of that, people, progressive Christians today, some of whom I know, discount you cannot trust Paul because he does not advocate for the abolition of slavery. Therefore, he is simply trying to uphold the uh, kind of the, the empire, right? Uh, so as a, a, he, he's a misogynist, he speaks against women. He says women should honor their uh, husbands and husbands should honor their wives. The progressive Christian doesn't understand how radical that is because Roman policy on slavery, it was, it was the form of organization within the Roman Empire. Um, nowhere, nowhere does the New Testament advocate for the change of, of the method of death, capital punishment. It, it does not call for the abolition of crucifixion. It acknowledges that crucifixion is a reality within the Roman Empire. It, nowhere uh, does it uh, advocate for a, a change to the treatment of women and children because women and children were treated as property. They were uh, a Roman citizen, a, a male Roman citizen could do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted. And so pederasty, that is a pedophilia, pederasty, you know, uh, uh, adult male to uh, children, um, what we would call uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, or pedophilia, was routine in the Roman Empire. Nowhere does Paul speak against that. And so people would say, well, you can't, he can't be trusted because he's not speaking against 
the uh, cruelties of the Roman Empire. Hmm. And so that's an, where do we find the New Testament speaking out, advocating change to Roman policy? If anything, you find Paul in a couple places and Peter in one place speaks about honoring the governing authorities. And these were in places corrupt and in places um, harmful governing authorities to the Christian community. The Roman Empire put Christians to death, right? And so John himself finds himself on the island of Patmos, suffering for the faith in the book of Revelation. Hmm. Nowhere that I can think of, but I would welcome feedback, does the New Testament advocate any change for Roman policy towards women, towards children, towards slaves, towards housing and economics and racial issues? And so we come back to Theology 101. This is the theology series from last summer. The Bible is addressed to a distinct audience. It has jurisdictional limits, okay? We don't think of that. We think of the Bible as speaking to all people. Yes, all people who come into covenant relationship. And so the Old Testament, the other word for testament is covenant. The Old Covenant is written to Abraham's family. Now, there are times that the prophets are speaking against the cruelties and the sins of other nations. But it is spoken in the context of an address to the covenant community, to Abraham's family. The New Testament or New Covenant is written to the community that is joined together by faith in Jesus Christ who is undergone the uh, covenant sign of baptism. And so, so the New Testament, the new covenant is written to the covenant family. And so the ethical instruction of the New Testament, the ethical instruction of the Old Testament are, are in the context of a covenantal family. So I speak to my children. I have authority uh, to, to, to parent and to govern and to instruct my children. I don't have authority to instruct your children, to discipline your children. My family, we live under a certain set of guidelines. Here's how we do things in our house. We would say those kind of things to our kids, okay? Well, why do I have to do that? Because I said so is the answer I gave our kids, okay? You probably did something similar with your children. And so there are jurisdictional limits. We have forgotten that. So, so I'm going to kind of pull back. This is, this is important as we talk about what we're going to address over the next couple of days. We have to get clear in our mind what we mean when we say we. We Christians, we Americans, okay? Those are two different. So uh, my ability to influence the government and influence policy is shaped by certain jurisdictional realities, right? It is shaped by the Constitution of the United States of America and the Constitution of the State of Virginia, or the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
So I may vote, I may participate, I may run for office, uh, I can do certain things to try to bring influence around public policy, but it's outlined jurisdictionally. <laughs> there are certain legal limits, and so those get you know, tested and amended and um, clarified through uh, the, the, the courts, right? And, and through Supreme Court, uh, higher review, judicial review. But that's very different than what's happening within the church. Okay, now I can pray to bring influence. But, but so I'm going to try to tease this out a little bit more, but it's very important when we talk about addressing, so critical race theory is trying to address the ills of our society, it is not purporting to do so from a biblical point of view, so we don't hold it up to whether it's, you know, holding to uh, scrutiny uh, per se, <clears throat> biblical scrutiny. But it's really important for us to think our way through this thing. As Christians who belong to the commonwealth of heaven and as American Christians who belong also to the Commonwealth of the United States of America. And we have to, we're going to tease some of these things out over the next couple of days. So this is a little wonky, little abstract, working away from the suffering of individuals as we talked about yesterday. But hopefully, uh, I'm going to bring this around by the end of the week and it will make a little more sense and it's going to help explain why the changes we seek and the changes that critical race theory seeks are much, much harder than we think. So let's, let's close now with prayer. Father, hear our prayer, <clears throat> prayer for mercy. Uh, as we live in these United States, as we live as Christians, as we live with dual citizenship, help us to live wisely and well within each of these distinct realms and to do so in a manner that brings honor to your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God be gracious to you and bless you. May God keep you. May God cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace this day and forevermore. Amen.